Michaela Pochner, Associate Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by New Leaf Symbiotics. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI. And it's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Tim Brannon has been described as a man who knows more about the history of Alice Chalmers than anyone else alive. He worked for the company in the early 1970s as the Alice Chalmers no-till planter was helping to fuel the rapid adoption of no-tilling in the U.S. Brandon went on to become an Alice Chalmers dealer and he reigns president of the dealership, B&G Equipment in Paris, Tennessee, while also farming a little over 500 acres with his brother. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Brandon talks with Frank Lesseter about the early days of Alice Chalmers and shares some memorable stories from the road as he introduced no-till planters to growers around the world. So Tim, tell me a little about your background. Has Western Tennessee always been home for you or not? Yes, born in Murray, Kentucky, actually. That's where everybody in Henry County, Tennessee, went to get born. (laughs) So West Kentucky, West Tennessee was my home. We were fortunate enough to be raised on a family farm, and our grandparents were sharecroppers. Dad served in the Army. He had quite an experience. He served in the 4th Armored Division of Patton's third army oh wow he, yeah they uh liberated bastone and then went on across germany to the rhine and he never talked much about it until after uh he got up in age but anyway he came back to the farm and his dad was farming and they bought farms and rented farms and in the north end of Henry County, it's right up next to the Kentucky state line. And West Tennessee, that little jig-jag where the West Tennessee and Kentucky meets on the state line, that's pretty close proximity if you look at it on a map. They had cattle and row-cropped corn, wheat, soybeans, and started farming with some pretty meager equipment. My granddad asked him, Pep, I said, what was the first tractor you had? He said, well, I traded two mules, a truck, all the equipment, a milk cow for a Model B Alice Chalmers and the equipment. He said, I traded <laughs> off everything except the old woman. Right. And my granddad didn't have much of a sense of humor, but he grinned and then he looked at me and he says, I should have kept the cow and tried to be a woman. <laughs> so, anyway, he started farming with that, and our heritage with Alice Chalmers goes back, uh, I guess, simply because uh, that's where they started. With there used to be a dealership in every town, sure, and so it grew from there. Dad and them added equipment, and the farming operation grew, and. Then two tow-headed boys came along, me being the first one, and we got a baptism of fire very early. Uh, Today, it wouldn't happen, but as really young men, we were out plowing and driving tractors and operating combines, and so we kind of grew up in it. And then in high school, I was privileged to get to work, mostly just volunteer at a local dealership as a really young man, and... We were attracted to that because the dealership was run by Eggerly Pascal, and he had a 
pulling tractor. And so, of course, that really got the blood flowing. And so we followed him and hung around at the dealership. And then later on in school, um, we worked there part-time. And then after graduating from Murray State University with an AGMEC degree, I was employed by Alice Chalmers in 75, 76, uh, and worked with Alice Chalmers Corporation until we came back here and was able to buy a farm equipment dealership in tail end of 78. Didn't get going until 79. And have been here ever since, uh, going on 42, 43 years. Right. So this is B&G Equipment in Paris, Tennessee? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I had a former partner, uh, Steve Gallimore, who is now a pastor of uh, Tennessee Valley Community Church. And so uh, he went from selling tractors to... uh, Selling a better way of life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you're probably both selling a better way of life, but he may be ahead of you. (laughs) Uh, He was also my first cousin, so it's it's in the family. So does the family still have the farming operation? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, My parents have passed away, and my brother and I, Dr. Tony Brannan. Now, he's not the kind of doctor that can do you any good. He's got more degrees than a thermometer, but... You know what they do with thermometers sometimes. But anyway, he um, is Dean of Agriculture at Murray State University. It's one of the largest non-land-grant agricultural programs in the nation. Uh, We farm a little over 500 acres as a hobby. What you're telling him about him and his doctorate degree reminds me of my wife. She was about five years old, and her dad had gone back to University of Illinois and got his Ph.D. in education. And she made the comment one day, well, here's my dad with a doctorate degree, and he can't even put legally put on a Band-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. My brother's talent is in management. He manages most of the money and the other things that go on in farm life. So you're basically, the major you carry is Massey Ferguson, correct? Yes. We have a long heritage with Agco and its predecessors. We were an Alice Chalmers dealer, and we also had New Idea, which uh, became part, and we also had White, <laughs> which became part of that, and Sunflower, which became part of that, and uh, Heston, of course, and all of those were rolled into uh, the Agco brands. When I went to work with Alice Chalmers, there were two employees that went to work about the same time. One was Ed Swingle, who was one of the founders of Agco, and the other one was Kevin Bean. I'm sure you remember that name. He was a marketing manager for both Fent and then Gleaner Combines when the Super Series came out. And they were dear friends, and both of them have passed on now. And Ed Swingle kept me informed about the formation of Agco, which was really a a fantastic story on how that happened, the right people at the right time. When the management team of Bob Ratliff and Jim Severs uh, John Schmeida, Ed Swingle, when they um, were put in charge of managing Deutz Alice, I kidded Ed in saying it was kind of like Br'er Rabbit in the Briar Patch. <laughs> Don't do this to me. We're not going to make it. And then those guys went out and bought the company and mortgaged everything they had, including their cars and swimming pools, to start a company. And the rest is history. They had some real bumpy days uh, at the start, but it turned out very well. Yeah. Well, I got some Massey Ferguson background, too. I was a graduate of Michigan State and worked for extension service and information for a couple of years. But then I came to Milwaukee, and I'm an old guy. I'm, I'm getting older every year, like you. But uh, in the late 1960s, I spent about four years as editor of the Massey Ferguson Farm Profit magazine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very with it, yeah. Yep. And in those days, it had a circulation of around 400,000 wow. people across the country. Times wow. have changed. My experience, of course, Alice Chalmers was headquartered in Milwaukee, too. And yeah. This old Tennessee boy, back in the 70s, Double Knit was popular. And I had no 
idea of wind chill factor at <laughs> 10 below. Yeah. And all the other green rookies when we were going to school to learn the virtues of, of selling and owning and farming with Alice Chalmers, they all got in a cab. And I said, this is ridiculous. This old farm boy can walk those two blocks over there to <laughs> West Alice. Yeah. When I got there, I was crying. I went to the restroom and pulled my pants down and where my undies stopped, it was blue all the way in my socks. <laughs> I got frostbite, but I was so embarrassed and didn't want to tell anyone, so I just suffered through. <laughs> Let's talk about your AC history. you kind of become a historian of Alice Chambers. Why don't you tell us about uh, when you got out of college, what made you go to work for Alice Chambers, and how you got involved in no-till? Okay. Well, of course, starting back a little before that, on our farm, it was in the very early 60s, 62, 63, 64. Sure. They started out with uh, up at Harry Young, the Christian County, Kentucky, and they started, and word spread just like wildfire. These guys are doing farming without plowing, and my dad and uncle were very much innovators and loved to try new things, and my granddad was not. And when they bought their first no-till planter, my granddad said, well, this won't work, and he used shoot, but it was a different variation of shoot. <laughs> so anyway, it did work, and it's funny that I said we were an early innovator on the farm, my dad was, but since being in the business, I've heard at least 100 of my former customers and customers today say, well, we bought the first Alice Chalmers no-till planter that was ever sold. <laughs> so, everybody likes to brag about being the first owner. But when we were in a dealership, Pascal Equipment was selling no-till planters, the very early versions, and they were both as a three-point hitch. Didn't sell very many of those, but the three-bar frame. And these were erector sets that you built and you purchased the components from Alice Chalmers. And some of the dealers found out that you could do better by buying the three-and-a-half-inch square bar that was mounted diagonally straight from the steel mills or whatever. So they would buy these in lengths of like 20 or 30 foot and bring them in and just buy the axles and attaching hardware and stationary brackets from Alice Chalmers and, of course, the units and the planters, and they would put their own hydraulics and build their own planters. Hmm. And it was a very innovative way to start, and that way you could customize a planter to whatever the farmer wanted. The early 72 series would only go down to 18, inch, 18 inches, sure. but most farmers back then were on wide row. 36 inches right. or 38 or 40 so you could interplant with them and you can sell a farmer a four row with three interplant units six row with five interplant units or even the big 12 rows with 23 units on it on the fold-up version so we were familiar with the alice chalmers uh, no-till when i went to work with alice chalmers um, fred garton was the product manager out of Laporte, we would go around and go to South Louisiana. No-till was new to South of I-10 in Louisiana. As a matter of fact, just about everything except sugarcane was and rice was new to South Louisiana right. when I was stationed there. And we ordered our first no-till planters in, and they came in on a boxcar. And when we opened the door, long story short, it took a cutting torch. <laughs> they had all fallen over. The dealer was upset. And so we spent many hours setting up the first no-till planter south of, uh, but that was in the, the later uh, 76. But anyway, the, the ability to customize those planters, even in Louisiana, where some of their no-till involved no-tilling into a permanent bed. That presented a challenge, too, right. as well. And then we also moved up and sold the new air planter versions. And in South Louisiana, that was another challenge. When the guy had a tractor that was 10 years older than the planter, and they used electric motors to drive the air pressure for the 77 series air units, and the alternator's half worked. 
And it was a well, let's say I did a lot of service calls as a sales rep, and took rolls of wire with me in the uh, in the trunk of the car, the old cutlasses we traveled around. Yeah. But those guys uh, used a lot of the attachments on the planter, even no-till, like uh, bed levelers, and um, used them as just um, attachments because they had already they had always used them, and so they didn't think they could plant without like cotton skids that they used in that time and some of the other attachments. And Alice Chalmers actually provided those. So they would put a no-till coulter in a bed leveler and go at it and try to stay on top of those permanent uh, beds in South Louisiana. We had lots of uh, fun, I guess you would call it that. And so all the way down to Thibodeau, Louisiana, there was not that many, but a few here and there. And, uh, of course, today, uh, it's, you know, a large majority of what is grown down there was no-till. Sure. Still, um, with the exception of sugarcane. So that's basically how we got started. Of course, when we came back here to Paris, we purchased a dealership uh, that was at that time Austin Equipment Sales. And... One of the things that we found when we came here was on the back. We didn't actually know what was in the boxes, <laughs> but there was over <laughs> there was over three hundred and eighty planter units stacked up wow. on the back of the building in cardboard boxes that had deteriorated, mm-hmm. and we made the agreement with Alice Chalmers to take those with new terms. We had no idea <laughs> what we were getting into, and these were the old flat chain units. Um, sure, right. So there again, it was another challenge, but we fill the country full of those uh, planters at a fantastic price. And one year, I think we sold nearly 60 planters, mm-hmm. and I don't think there was two of them that were equipped exactly alike. <laughs> Everybody had a different uh, a different spec and the little tweak on them. And some had row markers, some had marker guides. That was something else. That um, In no-till, the markers of those days were designed for conventional tillage. They were not strong enough to really uh, do a good job of marking the row for the next pass. Mm-hmm. So they came out with this little bar across the front that had a chain that dropped down. Oh, that's it. right. I remember those. Yeah. Uh, have you ever tried to stay on a row with a <laughs> chain that was swapping back and forth three feet? <laughs> right. It was hard to find the apex <laughs> right. of the arc. So farmers quickly realized that they had an old belt off of a Gleaner F or a G. Mm-hmm. That was a traction drive belt. And they sawed it up and bolted it on and that of the chain, and so they could <laughs> wouldn't look like they were inebriated when they went down through the field. <laughs> right. Well, what you say about these erector sets and everyone being different, we noticed that in Oto Farmer, too, because in the 70s and 80s, we used to run lots of pictures of guys taking their planters into their farm shops and making all these modifications. Well, planters today are so sophisticated and do what they want. You don't see those homemade modifications as much as you used to. No, sir, uh, especially if some of the wiring systems have CAN bus on it. Right. Um, whoever invented CAN bus, there is a special place and a bad place for that person. <laughs> and, my, <laughs> and those who adopt CAN bus, uh, you know, it's just it's a nightmare in the farm equipment field, but it's something we have to live with and learn. The farmers today, they are great at innovations. But there's some things you just don't mess with. The, the planters today are, are much better than they were back in those days. And the evolution, when Alice Chalmers built the 72 series unit, it was driven by a 32 or 35 flat chain unit. And it was 32, I think. It was one of those detachable links that you drive apart with a hammer. And as they wore they didn't want to stay on. And, of course, that led to the innovation of Dickie John and the monitor system. Right. The first Dickie John monitor that my uncle ordered when he read about it in the magazine, 
actually had a little mechanical flapper disc that mounted in the seed boot. It was not an electric eye. It was just a little micro switch. And every time the seed would hit the blade, a light would flash. So that's come a long way since a mechanical flapper now to telling you exactly how many seeds per acre and and the spacing and whatever that uh, with the electronic eyes they have today. So monitoring systems have <laughs> exponentially improved as well. But uh, you talk about the innovations. A lot of the farmers would take a basic frame. Some of them would actually run two no-till cultures. As I said, you built this as an erector set. You got the frame, and you could either put two transport axles or four transport axles on a, a four, six-row, eight-row planter. And they used cylinders that were phased, and this is one of the first to make it level. In other words, in order, if you had two hydraulic cylinders on the axle, in order to make the planter raise level, they had to be different size cylinders, and the oil out of the rod end of one was the same cubic inch displacement as the base end of the other one, and they had a leveling valve in it. And I could tell you some hilarious stories of the leveling valve, but farmers didn't understand it. And today, as in that early days, reading the operator's manual seems to be a, a something that was a punishment. <laughs> so, uh, we had all kind of calls from all over everywhere. Is uh, this planter just won't raise level? Well, if you raised it and followed the operator's manual, no, just tell me what to do. <laughs> And there was a transport valve and a leveling valve on these. And the wider and the more axles you put on it, the more complicated the procedure was. So uh, there again. Uh, but anyway, as you built this, some farmers would run, run one or two no-till cultures. There were different no-till cultures. Uh, Maynard Wahlberg, the guy that invented the blade, not the yeah. culture, right. what Alice did was take a rubber shock, it was a coil spring uh, molded in rubber, and it was a plow coulter, and sure. it was used for rocks. And they put this no-till coulter, plow coulter, on the planter frame. And he came up with the idea of making it wavy, and they had a two-inch coulter. This would somewhat just move the soil and make a seed bed for the unit to follow. And some farmers wanted more uh, workup of seed bed in some types of uh, conditions, and so the frame allowed them to do that. Some of them ran no-till cultures in the front and fertilizer on the second bar. Of course, your planter units on the third bar. And then later they came out with a no-till special where they turned the frame around and mm -hmm. put the two bars that were closest together on the frame to the rear and mounted a no-till coulter on that second bar which was now really close to the planter unit. And this um, would allow in planting in curves when farmers had fields that they had to plant in some condition other than a straight line for the coulter to more closely follow the unit or the unit follow the coulter so it wouldn't get out of the seed-prepared uh, soil. So, you know, there again, there's another variation of it. And they also had uh, the old type and hadrous knives. You could put those on and with shovels on it to inject liquid. Some of them used liquid fertilizer, some granular fertilizer. Um, and then, of course, like I said, the um, the units. The problem with the Alice Chalmers unit was that in sticky soil or in wet soil, the scrapers were mounted high and the double disc openers the soil would adhere to the double disc openers, and as the soil, as a unit rolled, the soil would be taken out of the seed trench, and when it hit the scrapers, it would be thrown out to the side. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you didn't have enough seed-covering seed soil left in the trench, and you would see corn laying on top of the ground. And yeah. so you'd have to, the solution was to really slow down. And later they came with a one-inch coulter. They thought that was the problem. The problem was not the no-till coulter. The problem was the soil adhering to the double-disc openers and being lifted out of the trench. Be 
before they discontinued the 74 series unit at Louisville, uh, they displayed a device that had runners on each side of the double disc openers. And this prevented the soil from being lifted out of the seed trench. And it was a little complicated. It had pivots in the front and spring pressure and all that. But we saw it and took off the deal, and we made our own. We just, uh, on the front divider scraper, we just welded two strips down below it, or we took the scrapers, moved them down, and put them at a 90-degree angle so that the soil would be kept in the seed trench problem solved mm-hmm. and it's uh, amazing how sometimes we over engineer things a simple solution to um, a pretty big problem and of course when the marketing specs came out on the 385 planner the planner that replaced the 78 series planner the marketing specs was to be able to prevent that and so they came up with closing disc that Instead of having down pressure, like all planters today used to close the seed trench, they used 18-inch closing openers. They were actually closers, but they were just exactly the same as the double-disc openers, only they were two inches larger, and they were set at an angle and closed the seed trench from the side. And that was a great innovation, and it was a novel idea. The first planters didn't even have press wheels on the back, but the guys in the sales department said, oh, no, you'll never sell a planter unless you have closing wheels on it. So they put a little spring-loaded wheel back there, just served no purpose. It just looked good. (laughs) So the the 385 unit, the the quadra-disc unit, they called it, that replaced the 78 series unit, still was in my estimation, the idea, ideal planner and the way to close a seed trench rather than trying to force the soil back down on top of the seed, you simply take the soil that was moved out with the double disc openers and you grab another inch of soil and you move it in from the side. It worked perfect. Um, but the 385 uh, died a, a slow death because Deutz Alice took over Alice Chalmers. Right. Now, one of the tragic stories in the history of Alice Chalmers is that Alice Chalmers had a right at 80%, like 78% of the market share of no-till planters. Uh-huh. It was phenomenal. And it was no-till at that time was in the double crop sure. area from right. southern Ohio, uh, Indiana, Illinois. Kentucky, Tennessee, and all through the South, where soft red winter wheat was grown and double crop of soybeans. That was the whole right. idea behind it. Of course, then it developed into corn as well, no-till corn. Well, when uh, Deutz bought them, they had budgets. And my friend, Lou Foverland was uh, in charge of sales, the planters. Deutz looked at it and said, well, look, you may own 80% of the no-till market, but that's only 20% of the planter market. Sure. What we need to do is build a planter that will sell in the conventional market, which 80% of the planters sold in the 80s were conventional planters. Mm-hmm. So what they did was they gave up a market that they dominated to go after a market that they had almost no representation in. Mm-hmm. And it was a miserable failure. The units were great. They had some early issues with them, but that was all taken care of, the field campaigns. The problem is they didn't build a frame to put it on, so you couldn't put a narrow planter, a large narrow row planter with interplant units. And that's what the market demanded, and that's what Kinsey and all the other manufacturers could do. Uh, including white. So um, they ended up selling that to Landau, and Landau ran with it for a, a few years, and then they discontinued it. Of course, Agco bought the white planter units. Right. But um, the, in my estimation, the 385 
and I guess it was because we did some of the developmental work on it. We run it on the same planter bar as the old Alice Chalmers planter side by side for comparisons to work it out when the engineers were working with it. But anyway, another little interesting sidelight there of the planter history of the Alice Chalmers. We'll come back to the conversation with Tim Brandon in just a moment. Before we do so, thanks to New Leaf Symbiotics for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI. And it's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lester with a little known no-till farmer fact. This time around, we're gonna take a look at potassium and phosphorus and at the Calmer Research Farm. Over two years, they spent $150 on phosphorus and potassium, but it ended up growing to $331 worth of extra corn and soybeans. That's a profit of $181 per acre, or equals 121% return on their investment. Now let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Tim Brannan as they discuss how the Alice Chalmers no-till planter was introduced to the world and how the mechanics of the planter led to a patent dispute. Well, the very first no-till planter was sent down to Milan, Tennessee. They had a no-till experiment station at the University of Tennessee at Milan. John Bradley was there for years. I know John Bradley, and he and I worked together with White on a ultra-narrow no-till cotton. He put articles in magazines and uh, used ultra-narrow no-till cotton and use a cotton stripper instead of a cotton picker. And they had seminars that I went through that if you farmed a thousand acres in 10 years, he had put a million dollars more profit in your wow. pocket. And it's uh, mainly because you took the expensive cotton picker out of the <laughs> equation. Right. But uh, when he did that, he mysteriously got a better paying job. And ultra narrow row stripper cotton was gone and the cotton stripper from Case and Deer was declared a failure, and they somehow or another came up with a huge grant to work on super staple, super staple picker cotton. Uh-huh. Now imagine that, you know. <laughs> Why would John Deere and Case, who were selling five hundred and six hundred thousand dollar cotton pickers, not want to sell? a $200,000 cotton stripper that would last 20 years with no maintenance. There you go. Right. Go figure that one out, you right. know. To say that, you know, well, anyway, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so back to the original story. Setting up a 72 series unit on a frame, and there were two rookies down there, uh, Phil Retzel and Jerry Williams, and it was hot. There was no shade to be found anywhere setting up that with hand tools in the sun 100 degrees unbeknownst to us one of the engineers from Laporte where the planter was built came down and he started telling these two boys how they were setting up the planter wrong (laughs) (laughs) one of them suggested a place that uh, the 916th Ridge was going to go. <laughs> and the guy got scared and left because <laughs> these were two big old Arkansas country boys setting up a planter that they didn't want to set up. So yeah. he had to come back and finish it up after the <laughs> end of the day. But anyway, um, the no-till day, early t- no-till days at Milan drew huge crowds. And we always had an excellent field demonstration and as hot as it was and as dry and as on the clay soil I usually had the demonstration in a bottom which was a little overflow soil but we would always do uh, as good as or better than anybody as long as 
uh, we were down there with the Alice Chalmers planner and demonstrating it. It was quite a day that everybody had spent a week preparing for, and then the teardown came after the day was over. So it was a lot of work, but it was worth the effort, and it was introduced the entire nation to no-till. People from all over the United States and all over the world actually came and visited the no-till field day. We had a group from China that came in that visited after uh, the field day was over, had to stay there, and Lynn Shriver from uh, Alice Chalmers, and they were looking at the tractors and the planter, and uh, Lynn was trying to get them to look at all the features of the tractor, and they could care less about the tractor. <laughs> they were they were taking pictures and, and measurements of the planter. Yeah. <laughs> that was all they were interested in. And uh, one guy would get Lynn off to the side through an interpreter, and the rest of them were just like little bees, measuring in the hoppers and taking pictures and. Uh, so I don't know whatever became of that. I don't know if there was ever a Chinese copy of a Alice Chalmers planter, but uh, there sure was the possibility there with all of them uh, doing all that research and measuring. I always remember the first time I went, you get no-till as soon as you pull into the parking lot because they had double-crop soybeans one with a one-row planter, and they marked off the planting spaces with growing soybeans. So your parking space, Faces were marked with soybeans that were about six inches tall, planted yep. by an Alice Chalmers one-row no-till planter. Right. That, uh, what percent of the farm are crops in your area are probably no-till? Eighty to ninety percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason that it's not higher than that, I guess, is. Uh, there's a lot of minimum till, and sure. the advent of vertical tillage tools, uh, high-speed vertical mm-hmm. tillage tool like Sunflyer C630, uh, they can run that over, and it still keeps the uh, crop residue on top, but it right. will take care of some of the weed pressure mechanically rather than depending on the chemical uh, control of it. And so um, that is the only reason. And of course, they come back in, and it, I guess you call it no-till the next spring. It's actually a minimum tillage. Yeah. But as far as chisel plowing and disking and uh, running a conditioner over the field, and uh, there's very little of that that happens uh, anymore. I assume double cropping's big in your area. Yes, Um with the exception of it's coming back with the price of wheat now. Hmm. For a couple of years, it really dropped due to the uh, price of soybeans versus the commodity price of soft red winter wheat. If you lost five bushels of yield due to having to wait on putting the soybeans out after wheat, if you lost five bushel an acre, that's fifty seventy five dollars an acre, and right. at wheat, the price it was you weren't making hardly anything on the wheat, so it really uh curtailed the soybeans planted after soft red winter wheat. However, now with seven dollar wheat and the price of uh, soybeans it makes that decision a little more difficult planting soybeans after wheat. Um, is a good rotation, gives you two crops in one year and a lot of cash flow during times where farmers have no cash flow with the wheat crops. So those are the advantages. Like I said, it's not as prevalent now as it was during the 60s and 70s when uh, double cropping was, uh, that, that was your rotation, corn, wheat, and soybeans. That was the rotation back in those days. Well, at the Harry Young farm, John and his grandson Alex, they're still following that same uh, corn, wheat, soybean double crop rotation after 60 years. Yes, sir. Um, It's a family tradition. It's kind (laughs) of like down at Brannan Farms, we call our farm unusually green acres. Um, We do the same thing. We've always uh, planted wheat and soybeans and corn, and we 
now farm all the pasture ground after we got rid of the cattle that my grandfather and father grandfather and my father thought they couldn't live without. Sure. <laughs> so in your dealership, what are you what are you selling as a no-till planter? The uh, white planters. We're now just a CUE dealer, and so um, we've partnered with another dealer, and we've got two or three precision plant units out with the white frame, and those are the precision plant is just a phenomenal planter as to uh, anything you need in a planter. The, the precision plant is just fantastic, and the uh, uh, the white unit is also one of the most durable units on the market, and so farmers realize the value of that and the um, uh, white planter has a, a great tradition as well. We do the National Rotage Conference which will bring in a thousand people and it's in Louisville in January. You still hear these old timers talk about how much they love the white planter and a bunch of them are still running them. Well I was telling you about the problem the Alice had with high speed and throwing the soil out of the trench. When Deer and Kenzie came with the gauge wheels that were beside the double disc openers, that eliminated that and kept the soil in the trench. And then you closed it with two uh, angle press wheels, which if you will look back in the old 1950s Alice Chalmers catalog, you can find a double press wheel. They called it a California beat option or something. Mm -hmm. So also, you know how popular seed farmers are today. Well, if you look back in the old 1950s price book, there was a semi-pneumatic one by seven seed farmer wheel that uh, instead of dragging through the soil, actually was on a ball bearing wheel with a cast iron center in it for weight. And it was a very popular item that we sold uh, hundreds of uh, as a seed farmer back before seed farmers were ever invented. So uh, there's another Alice Chalmers invention. But to continue the story, when White came out with the planter, they had both a plate option and a plateless, and they called them air planters, air simulation. Alice Chalmers and White got into, I think, a patent dispute. And the theory behind the seed simulation on the White and the Alice Chalmers planter was, instead of having a vacuum like most planters have today, where they draw a vacuum and the seed are placed due to pressure differentiation into a pocket, and then it rolls around until it's mechanically held in place and then dropped on the ground. These White and Alice Chalmers planters pressurize the seed hopper or the bottom of the seed hopper and that air pressure forced the seed into the seed pockets and as the pockets rolled around Alice Chalmers used a foam cutoff pad to mechanically hold the seed in place until the seed was dropped. The white planter used a brush and they kind of compromised in that Alice ended up with what they call a center pocket plate. In other words, it was like a dimple in a piece of plastic with a hole in it, and that allowed the seed to roll in it. And when the seed rolled in and blocked off the hole, then it was held in place by air pressure differentiation between mm -hmm. atmospheric and the pressurized uh, seed disc. White went with the edge drop planter. They had a dimple formed in the edge of the plate with a little hole in it, and so the seed rolled and the edge of the plate against the metal hopper and it also blocked the hole off and that's what kept it in place until it rolled over mm -hmm. and hit the air cutoff brush or the brush that mechanically held it in place. So they had the same system and two different. Which one was better? I don't know that one was better than the other, but um, the one that survives today is still the white planter with the edge drop seat. Alice used as did white electric motors to power a squirrel cage fan and the squirrel cage fan put two water column inches of pressure into the seed hopper if you were lucky mm -hmm. <laughs> as i said electric motors and farmers and those days it wasn't the best combination with some of the switches they had in the apparatus back then with brush motors right. and all that dust but anyway 
um, White later came with a hydraulic-powered blower motor that run through tubes into each planter. So they had one power source and a large squirrel cage blower, which provided an adjustable amount of pressure, which was a fantastic improvement over the Alice system. Uh, on the farm, I still have an old 390 Alice Chalmers planter that's parked on the side of the road, a 12-row, that had a white blower system that we adapted to the 78 series Alice units. And the ability to control the air pressure was just absolutely a 100% improvement over the electric blower motors. And some of the best stands I had was uh, with that unit. But anyway, so everybody else went to the competition, went to the vacuum. The problem with the vacuum is you have to have seals. And with the pressure system that Dwight has, uh, there's no seals. Uh, the, the seed was the seal and the plate. And you could have air leakage, and it caused no problem whatsoever. If you get a vacuum planter and you have a hole in the hose, you've lost your vacuum and your seed accuracy. Uh, one of the demonstrations we did was go out and take a seed hose and take a knife and poke a hole in it, and you couldn't tell any difference in the um, planting rate uh, unless you had a huge air hole, but just a little air hole would not make a difference in the planting accuracy with both the Alice Chalmers and the white, especially the white. So that was uh, an innovation that, that white and Alice Chalmers shared as well. But as, like I said, as the, the planters developed, uh, the ability to have narrow row uh, became the key. And 30-inch to 15-inch splitters, and now then a lot of the farmers are going 20-inch rows. Having said that, back during the 60s, Alice Chalmers also had, uh, or Gleaner also had 20-inch corn, corn heads. But um, uh, like I said, times change. <laughs> that was a good idea back in the, the 60s, it seemed like, and then it went away in the 70s, and then and here in the 2020s, it's back again. So there are cycles in farm equipment technology. Right. Well, back in the 60s and 70s, one of the corn yield champs was Clyde Height from Illinois, who was running 20-inch rows and 20-inch hitters. The book Plow Peddler by Walt Bisher. Yeah, Walt and I had uh, lots of conversations. He retired in Pigeon Forge. He was a marketing manager with Alice Chalmers. I live in a subdivision where Walt used to live before he went to Pigeon Forge, and he lived yeah. about six houses away from where we still live today. <laughs> Did he ever tell you any jokes? <laughs> oh, yeah, once in a while. And uh, the very the very first no-toe conference we had in 93, I, I used him as the banquet speaker. Our son, Michael, told me I had to ask you about a couple live radio interviews Walt did. Walt, he wrote it in the book, The Plow Peddler, Elenco and Alice Chalmers gave a planter away to the winner of the no-till yield contest. And so mm -hmm. they had this guy live. And they asked him, uh, said, now, tell us about that planter you got. Oh, this thing ain't worth a flip. You know, it <laughs> broke down all the time. And Walt was sitting over there. He was just going nuts. Uh, you know, this guy just told him how great this Alice Chalmers planter was that he planted with. And the guy was just really down in it, and they were just going nuts. And they said, well, what about your chemicals? And he said, oh, man, I had to get my wife and kids out pulling weeds. You've never seen as many weeds. And the guy was down in the chemical company, and, and they finally ended it. And Walt and the guy from Elanco went over and said, what's the deal? You know, you just killed us on the radio. And he said, what do you mean? He said, you said the planter was no good. He said, oh, yeah, that was that Oliver I had that I traded in on that Alice Chalmers. I said, the Alice Chalmers was great. So that's the reason we got it was that Oliver was such a terrible planter. <laughs> he said, you just killed me on the radio. And the guy from Elanco said, what about the chemicals? He said, oh, man, them things are expensive. He said, when we put it down, like you said, put it down, said, uh, we had great weed control, but, man, we couldn't afford that, so we cut back on it, and that's when we got in the weed problem. <laughs> so they learned real quick, you do not do live interviews. <laughs> 
Well, we've been talking almost an hour, but Ronnie Holt from Martin had emailed my son some time ago and said, Tim Brandon knows more about the Alice Chalmers planter history than anybody else alive <laughs> today. So it's uh, been a great well, conversation. I've uh, been privileged to know a lot of guys who worked with Alice Chalmers and from the engineering to the marketing and sometimes I feel like the Forrest Gump of farm uh, equipment. Uh, I never really did anything great, but I knew people, a lot of people who did a lot of great things. So, uh, And like I said, the engineers uh, behind the scenes are the guys that uh, make all this happen. And usually what happens is an engineer develops a product that works absolutely fantastic. And then the bean counters of the company get a hold of it and they go, no, nope, no, nope, it's too expensive, too expensive. you got to take some cost out of it. So they do. They publish the product and manufacture it and it gets out in the field and guess what happens it breaks down and so they have to go back and put the field modifications on it to build it exactly like it was to start with on the drawing board thanks for tuning into the no-till farmer influencers and innovators podcast you can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcast before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. Somebody sent me an email and said, hey, what's going on with uh, carbon now? We've got possibilities of contracting carbon. And is this the first time this has happened? Well, no, it hasn't, because I remember back in the year 2000, we had predicted no-tillers would soon be earning carbon credit payments. It hadn't happened at that time, but there's still plenty of governmental maneuvering to be done around the world before this idea is fully accepted. Since no-till slows the loss of greenhouse gas emissions, it will play a key role in capturing carbon and providing long-term storage of atmospheric carbon in the soil. In fact, no-till alone could offset 20% of the world's annual carbon dioxide emissions. It's catching on these days, and if you combine no-till with expanded crop rotations, rotational grazing, nitrogen-fixing crops, and cover crops, we'll see a dramatic reduction in the future carbon losses with agriculture. Thanks to Frank Lester and Tim Brannon for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at mpaulkner at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2441. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. Please email your questions to us at listenermail at no-tillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Associate Editor Michaela Plotner. Thank you for listening.